Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, November 3rd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The biotech revolution promises untold breakthroughs that could save countless lives, but only if humanity can get out of its own way. STAT's Matt Herper joins us to discuss a thoughtful, personal story about biology's century. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. Thanks for listening. As the company that pioneered the biotech industry, Genentech is known for asking and answering big scientific questions. I'm joined by the company's Chief Diversity Officer, Quita Highsmith, to hear why asking tough questions about health inequity can be a powerful driver of change. Thanks, Angus. As marginalized communities continue to be hit hardest by the pandemic, The need to tackle systemic inequity has never been more urgent. We need to stop tiptoeing around the issues of race and health disparities and shine a spotlight on the uncomfortable truths. Why are clinical trials 85% white? Why should your health be defined by your zip code? We at Genentech are investing deeply and partnering across the healthcare ecosystem to help dismantle the status quo. Visit gene.com slash askbiggerquestions to learn more. That's G-E-N-E dot com slash askbiggerquestions. For two decades, our STAT colleague Matt Herper has reported on the scientific breakthroughs and medical innovations that have transformed the practice of medicine. We now have CRISPR treatments and gene therapies for rare diseases, cancer immunotherapies, and more recently, COVID vaccines that are curing diseases and saving lives, just to name a few. But in a thoughtful and personal story published this week, Matt argues that there are some concerning fault lines that threaten the biotech revolution. These new technologies are emerging so fast that our ability to properly assess them is hampered. The infrastructure necessary to parse what works from what doesn't is falling behind, and that could actually imperil future progress. Matt's new story is called Biology Century, and it was just published today, Thursday. You should probably pause this podcast, read it, plus play again. Um, And now Matt is joining us to talk about it. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Matt, your story is both, uh, I kind of see it as both a celebration and a warning. You know, you say that biotech innovation is here, a lot more is coming, but we're not ready for it. So explain that, please. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. It, it was intended as a celebration and a warning. People often say that, say, computer technology is advancing faster than medicine, and they're actually wrong. But... um There is this fundamental bottleneck, which is that the hard part is not just discovering a new drug, medicine, treatment, device. It's figuring out how to know what it does and doesn't do, proving it works, but also just really knowing um, whether it works. And we have this tendency in this country. It's kind of like the metaphor I use in the story is we like sports cars. 
we want to build Ferraris. We build all these cool things. But then the, the road that those sports cars have to drive to get to the market and to get to patients is currently really made of mud. And whenever we have a new moonshot for cancer or anything else, we focus on making more sports cars. But the roads are still made of mud and the sports cars aren't made to drive through mud. And so there's this... I describe it as the whole system lurching. There's this feeling you get where you notice these things, you get this amazing breakthrough. And then when it has to move to the next step, when it has to move to broader populations, the whole thing kind of stumbles. And this this is one of the reasons that biotech innovation is getting more expensive, not less. Well, yeah. And that the bottleneck you mentioned, could you kind of elaborate on that? Like You point out that researchers are not conducting the sort of rigorous clinical trials that would... I guess, pave the roads. I don't want to stretch a metaphor that <laughs> right. isn't right to begin with, but instead relying on shortcuts. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, one idea is that you can use computers, that you can use real-world evidence. And there's been a huge advance in what real-world evidence, which we used to call observational studies. It's really pretty much the same thing. But there's been a huge advance in the kind of data you can collect outside of an official clinical trial setting. I mean, we used to have to do all this stuff on paper. Like if you can just collect it from the electronic health record, that's better. If you can collect data from Fitbits or the equivalent, that's better conceivably than having someone do a six minute walk test. The problem is that we still really don't know what we don't know. And this is actually true in anything. It's true in tech. It's why Facebook A-B tests, which ads you're going to click on and how to make you click on them really the same idea as a randomized trial. The only way to figure this out is to find ways of randomly assigning people who are being treated for something or taking a preventative for something to get that or something else and look at the results. And there's a lot you can change about that system, but that really needs to be the core facet because we don't have artificial intelligence that is smart enough to get rid of the need to do that. Talk to me about like the consequences of not conducting these types of, you know, these classic trials um, the way that they've been done. I mean, up until like, you know, the last decade or two, you know, proponents will will counter that some of these new innovations could enable medicines to get into patients' hands faster, you know, that real world evidence is, I mean, something, I mean, as you point out, that we've always done in a, in a sort of form, you know, as observational trials, why why not speed up the process? I mean, I'm not against real-world evidence. There's a whole section in this story about some of the exciting stuff Verily is doing. But it has limits in terms of what you can do with it. And my concern is that instead of, to go back to the metaphor, instead of fixing the road, we keep trying to find other paths. And at some point, it's just easier to fix the infrastructure. What happens? Well, Adam will remember this because it's when we both started covering the industry. If you go back to the early 2000s, the public idea about the drug industry wasn't that people weren't getting access to medicines. There was actually a period in the late 90s where that was kind of the narrative. But then you had this big wave where drug after drug turned out to be much more risky than people thought. And that actually did involve lead to some of these trials getting bigger in some instances for things like diabetes drugs. But, you know, it really 
especially as you move into bigger populations and more common diseases, which often means that the overall benefit isn't as instant as allowing someone with cystic fibrosis to breathe better. Um, you get into a place where you really need to understand really well what these medicines are doing. And one really great example was Vioxx, which was a drug pushed by Merck. There was another one called Celebrex that was made by Pfizer. It was this giant marketing war. There were ads everywhere. And some researchers said, well, but if we look at your data, Merck, it looks like Vioxx might cause heart attacks. And Merck said, no, 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 we think it's the drug we compared it to. And then turned out Vioxx did cause heart attacks. And then there's the question of whether it was withdrawn. Uh, you can argue it shouldn't have been, but it definitely caused heart attacks. Um, so the consequence is that we get it wrong. And that consequence is on the flip side, too. People like to think that these medicines aren't getting to patients because, well, the FDA is being too tough, right? Or insurers don't want to pay for it. And look, there are grains of truth. You can find examples. But the big reason things don't get to patients is because we don't have the capacity to run the studies. The studies are too slow. Um, far too few people are able to are entering into clinical trials. Far too, people, few, too people have access to them. We don't make testing to figure out what works part of the regular practice of medicine, which is very different from that example we just gave of, you know, a site like Facebook or Google where you're always part of the experiment. So, Matt, I remember the Vioxx withdrawal quite well like you did. And, you know, again, that was that was a really kind of earth shattering event uh, it, it, it caused a lot of alarm and there were a bunch of them at that time. But I think like, you know, we haven't had uh, another sort of drug recall withdrawal based on safety uh, issues like that in a really long time. And I wonder, is that encouraging or are you worried that, you know, that we're heading in that direction, that that could happen again? So I think it's encouraging. But what I've kind of been saying for years to to people is that. That happened because we were in a mode of drug companies looking for mass market drugs, which is a good thing. We want drugs for heart disease. We want drugs for depression. You know, we want drugs for these diseases that a lot of us have. Um, the way the industry reacted to that and to also some changes in science that were going on was that as – you and I both know really well, a lot got put in on cancer, a lot got put in on rare disease. And those are areas where if your cancer drug has a lot of side effects, but it's effective, the side effects have to be pretty bad, right? Like we've, we've seen some drugs that are really toxic that end up becoming important treatments because cancer is even worse. Right. And we should mention we didn't that, that Vioxx, for those who don't remember, Vioxx was a painkiller. So this was used. Uh, yes. This is this was you know essentially you know like the way the way we take Advil today. You know people were taking it was a prescription painkiller, but it was widely prescribed. And the the actual reason that you were supposed to use it was that it was supposed to be better for your stomach. So like it was the main benefit was a safety benefit. Some people think it also might have been more effective, but no, that wasn't really proven. So kind of following that same thread of the move from drug companies focusing on these massive indications to sort of maybe not retreating, but pivoting to the relatively more tractable worlds of uh, cancer 
and rare diseases, you know, you kind of get to the, the point in your story that large, randomized, rigorous clinical trials are an absolute necessity for knowing whether any of these things work. And yeah, and also there are people, there are people in academia, um, in science, in, in regulatory bodies who are advocating for exactly that, more randomized trials, larger trials, but they're becoming harder to do and more expensive to do, it seems. Is there a solution to that, to where everyone can be a little better satisfied with how we do science? Well, so first, this is all really hard, right? And there are there are reasons that costs go up. And one of the things that's happening is that drug companies tend to want to collect a lot of data because what if the FDA wants to know that, right? So there is this idea that's been around. And actually, the FDA commissioner, Robert Califf, was an early proponent of these things called pragmatic or large simple trials. And a really great example of these was the recovery trial that we saw in COVID out of the UK, um, where they were able to test a lot of the drugs that people were saying, well, this might help with COVID, this might not. And, you know, this is the trial that shows the dexamethasone does help in COVID in people who are on ventilators, the steroid that was kind of the first big discovery, and also that hydroxychloroquine didn't help those people. Um, and yes, when you have a trial, then people will start arguing about, did it use the right comparator? A negative trial doesn't always mean a drug doesn't work, but it's a much better way of getting at truth and getting at what's going to help patients than not having these studies. Um, so that's one way forward. And one of the hopes is that technology and real world evidence, real world data could help us do those kinds of trials. That seems to be a very slow movement right now. When I look at companies doing like cardiovascular outcome trials, uh, which are they're, they're happening. It's not that these have completely gone away. They're happening in the same way they did 10 years ago. There's not like a major technological advance that's making them cheaper and faster. So you just mentioned, you know, COVID, a situation that, I mean, I think really brought this concept of how quickly can we run clinical trials to the forefront. And I mean, there there is certainly the optimist view that it you can do it. It works. Look how it turned out. We have two you know, vaccines that got really rapidly approved by uh, or authorized by the FDA and, um, you know, have been administered to millions, if not billions of people at this point. Um, what do you think are some of the lessons? Like, is is there a, a pessimist view? Are there lessons to take away from COVID around, like, how we, if we're going to do this quickly, how we do this? There are so many lessons from covid and it's kind of the brightest spot and also the darkest spot. Um, if you look at what happened with vaccines, it was absolutely amazing. And not just those two vaccines, but also the ones that we later found out that we didn't like as much. Uh, the AstraZeneca one, the AstraZeneca Oxford one, the Johnson Johnson one also ran huge trials. Novavax ran a huge trial and was able to do it very fast. They're like, we find out manufacturing is also important, right? This stuff is really hard. Um, but we were able to do those trials and we were able to do them quickly. And but what we should learn from that is that required a concerted investment that required the NIH getting behind a lot of these. Pfizer was kind of able to go it alone. And there was also just a widespread sense of there were a lot of people who wanted to be in those trials. People were kind of excited 
to be part of the solution. You know, there was kind of a a little bit of a of a, a wartime mentality because we were fighting this virus. On the flip side, what happened with therapeutics is everything that's wrong with the system. There were a ton of little trials that couldn't answer whether a medicine worked or not. It was like everybody was starting their own hydroxychloroquine trial. We have recovery as a great example of like, here are some guys who actually figured out how to answer these questions. But the US health systems didn't manage to pull that off with all this infrastructure and all these clinical trial groups. That was all much slower here. And so it does, it points to, yes, these problems are solvable and we can figure out how to solve them. And you have to do it, right? You have to, you have to figure it out. You have to do the work. One of the other big trials that was a, a, a nice attempt at, at testing lots of drugs was, was funded in part by um, the CEO of Stripe, right? Like the, the system worked, but there are also a lot of ways the system didn't work. And they're, they're kind of identifiable places where we could fix things or do things better. So, Matt, you cite the recovery trial, which was done in the UK, as kind of this shining example of how uh, you know clinical trials should be run and, and the end results uh, that come from them. Um, is that possible in the US? I mean, like we didn't, the US didn't have a recovery-esque trial during COVID. Um, you know, is it, can we, do we have the infrastructure? Do we have a system here in the US that would allow that to happen? And, and if we did, like, what would that look like? Well, so- I mean, one of the things that people love to say in response to this is, well, it's single payer and that, but it's not just that it's single payer and it's not true that you couldn't replicate some of these things in the US without a single payer system. One of the main problems is real. there is actually more as much EHR interoperability and we don't have unique patient identifiers in the US and there have been a lot of technical attempts to solve that, but making it so that any advance that means that people will have their own records. There are also health systems that are big enough that they could think about doing something like this. Um, there certainly have been steps in other places from Kaiser and from uh, Geisinger of, of taking steps like this, of figuring out how to, to leverage that kind of research. Um, I think the stuff that Verily is talking about sounds very much like the kind of technology that could lead to being able to do some future version of that kind of trial better. Um, I do think the recovery guys kind of, it's a little bit like watching a sport where you, where you see a player really perform well in a tough game. Like they really just pulled it off. Like they figured out how to do, there are political obstacles, there are logistical obstacles, there are technical obstacles. And in that case, they figured all that out pretty well. The National Institutes of Health does big clinical trials. Some of the most important clinical trials I've ever covered came out of the NIH, not out of drug companies. But they don't do that many. And it does seem to me that if we – it's like a muscle, right? And so part of it is just if we practiced more, we'd be better at it. So while there is – a groundswell of support for, you know, your point about gathering more evidence and better evidence to better understand uh, what new breakthroughs might actually portend. There is a counterforce 
um, maybe not explicitly advocating for less evidence, but um, I'm referring to like the movement in the U.S. from some patient advocates and a lot of libertarians to accelerate the approval of new medicines or new interventions, mostly by curtailing how much data is gathered before they're approved. The right to try initiatives and other things sort of synonymous with that that have arisen. I mean, they've been around for decades, but but have really seemed to take shape over the last five or six years. How worried are you about that counterbalance and, and whether it gains momentum? I've always been very worried about that. And I think it's important to be careful here because sometimes those advocates are right. I don't think that standards should be the same for a disease where there's nothing as for one where there is something. I absolutely support, for instance, uh, the some of the decisions that have been made in cancer where if you can shrink tumors a lot and you've got some data showing that your drug isn't harming patients, that's pretty good evidence for patients who don't have other options. And it, it we shouldn't always hold a super high bar for everything. But the risk of just kind of allowing something through because maybe it works is that next time you have to compare to that. And you're also giving everybody this medicine without knowing if it does more harm than good. And there hasn't been – right to try has been a big um, political movement, but it hasn't been a big medical movement. You don't see a lot of – people getting these experimental drugs. The best way to get those people, those experimental drugs, is to figure out systems where you're doing it, if not in randomized clinical trials, then at least in trials where you're really monitoring what happens in every patient. Um, and I do think that over time, I feel like the cases where more data were demanded, patients end up better. And there is a limit to that. I don't think that we should have done large randomized trials for Trikafta to prove that it, the cystic fibrosis drug from Vertex to prove that it extended these patients' lives. I think when you're you're seeing people have that kind of dramatic improvement, you know, at some point enough is enough. But I think we have to be very careful about acting out of panic and desperation. I don't think it ends well. So, Matt, you, you mentioned at the beginning of the piece, you know, the 20th century kind of being like the century of physics that brought us. I mean, we we went to the moon. We saw the rise of, I mean, air travel. Um, we also developed the atomic bomb is in your mind, like is right to try our potential downfall in the century of biology. Is there something else that is on your mind that you think could be? dangerous or do you think that we're going to be completely surprised i think the problem is that we need to change how we think and we need to change kind of what we expect and that's a cultural social problem it's a bigger political problem because politicians even though they tend to be lagging indicators are the ones you want to figure it out first um as with climate change as with so many other uh big scientific topics um, I don't think I actually don't think right to try is that big an impediment because I think at the end of the day, there's money changing hands and the data tends to have to be collected. Um, you know, I thought what happened with Agihome was an instructive moment where there were big issues with those clinical trials and 
it was the payer who said stop, right? It's because it's not just about what does the FDA want. Um, in terms of, but I think this kind of thinking, look, someone mentioned to me in one of the responses to this this morning that, well, you know, a genetically engineered pathogen is is the biological version of the atomic bomb. And yes, it could be. And we have this worry of that happening because it fell into the wrong hands. But part of that is thinking about all these things in terms of risk and benefit and odds and probabilities in a way that that I don't think, even though there's all sorts of probabilities involved in the computer on my desk, I don't think we have to think about you know the quantum mechanics of my microprocessor uh, to have an intelligent conversation about what computers do to our society. It's maybe not even an important point. I think we do need to have a better sense of what it means when we can start to do all these crazy things to biology. Um, and I, I do think the biggest risk is that we just don't have the capacity to test things and see around corners and figure out what is important. Um, that's, that's really the... I think that even goes if you wanted to talk about things like biosafety and pathogens and responding to them. And I, I do think that means focusing on clinical science is a really good place to start and that those insights will actually filter out to some of these other problems. So Matt, this, the piece was great. It, it, I, I really enjoyed it. There's a lot to think about. Uh, we should let people know the inside joke that, you know, inside that this was called <laughs> Matt's Opus. And it, and it took a it took a long time for you to get this thing written and done. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's my, out there in the my world name now. for it was <laughs> my name for it was a bit different, Adam. <laughs> I called it the albatross. It, um, yes, I, because I, it felt like it was always hanging around my neck. Yes, the I, whole time. I, I remember the phone calls and texts from you talking about how you just needed to get this thing written. So yeah, that that is true. So listen, if anybody wants to continue this conversation uh, and and actually join in, uh, Matt is conducting a live chat where he'll be talking about the biology century piece on Monday at 11 a.m. And you can find a link to that live chat on Stat's website. This is one of those texty typey chats. So you don't have to be like, we'll, 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 be, we'll be texting each other in front of everybody. It'll be fun. While we have you here, let's, let's, do, a, let's do a promotional plug for the Stat Summit that is coming up. Um, give, us a, give us a preview of what we can expect at our live in-person Stat Summit. Well, I was going to say that another great place to discuss a lot of these issues is the Stat Summit. I think we have a really strong lineup. You know, I mean, one of the reasons this piece was hard is because I do put a lot of time and attention into our events. And we've got some really big name, great speakers. Um, you know, we've got Nora Volkov from NIDA. We've got Tony Fauci zooming in. Uh We'll have Albert Borla there from Pfizer, Ken Frazier, who's retiring as chairman of Merck to talk about kind of what's next. Really looking forward to that conversation. Um, Damien will be interviewing Ashish Jha. Adam will be interviewing the Vertex executives, yes, both the CEO and CSO. Um, it, it's it's going to be Helen will be sitting down with the people who ran the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine efforts and asking them about what's next in that field. Um, it's a really packed agenda. Uh, we'll have a 
great panel of, um, you know, biotech startups that we think could change things, including one of the really fascinating gene editing companies out there. Um, so, yeah, and they do, I'm looking forward to doing this in person. Uh, you know, it's going to be a two day meeting. We'll have hope and have, see a lot of people there, um, and would love to have folks there. And there will also be for listeners to the read out loud, there's going to be a live recording. Oh yeah, that's right. We're doing a live <laughs> read out loud. Read out. I'm sorry. A live read out loud. I, I we're calling it. We're going to call it read, read out, out live. loud live. Is that what we're going to call it? Yeah. We have no idea what we're going to do, but yeah, we are, we are doing that. All right, Matt. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's always great. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and maybe the subject line of Matt's next big opus slash brain dump. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.